Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators. Brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Hi, we are pumped to welcome Professor Depot to our show, Mostly Awesome, today. He has been a professor for electrical and computer engineering at the Technical University of Munich, in short, TUM, for almost 20 years now. And besides that, he's also one of our board professors at CDTM, being involved in major strategic and organizational decisions about our add-on study program in technology management, and above that, being a great mentor. Yeah, who are we? Next to me is Easy from Class of Spring 20, and I'm Ellie from Class of Fall 19. We're both active students of CDTM, the add-on interdisciplinary study program in technology management from Munich. And with Professor Diepold, we are curious to dive into his path into becoming a professor at TUM, his opinion on peer reviews, and I'd say my personal favorite, how he initiated a series called Technically Single, available on MaxDome and Six to increase popularity of STEM field-related education education and occupations and yeah his underlying motivation so without further ado let's welcome professor DePaul to mostly awesome Professor Diebold, a very warm welcome to Mostly Awesome. So you have been a professor for data processing at the Technical University of Munich for almost 20 years now and I'd say you don't really have this classical CV of a professor because uh, after your PhD, you gained industry experience for around 10 years as CTO in various tech companies. And then you only decided to go back to academia and become a professor. So what inspired you to make this decision back then to become a professor? Yes, I'm glad to be a part of this um, podcast. So um, first of all, I would say, um, it seems nowadays as this, if this uh, kind of is an unusual uh, professor career, but back in the days, it was like the common thing for a professor in electrical engineering to have spent some time in industry first. Typically, it was expected to be somewhere between five, at least five years in industry before returning back to academia. So it is now, let's say in the last 10 to 15 years, this has been kind of a uh, shrinking this approach and we have more and more the the situation of a let's say more anglo-american uh, academic career or as is also a common place in in other sub uh, let's say in other scientific fields in engineering it has always been like going to industry first and then come back to academia ah okay i see And yeah, how is it holding a chair at such a renowned university for almost 20 years now? Are you still assessed by your publishing performance, like the number of papers you publish in high-ranking journals per year? Or how does it look like? Well, uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, well, when I joined the TUM about 18, 19 years ago, um, I was already tenured from the very first day. Otherwise, I would not have taken the job, by the way. So um, my, let's say, my professional development as a professor and all the rights and things have not been depending on my publication record. My reputation has been re depending on those things. But the reputation is, of course, a different thing. That means for uh, a professional progress in my domain, it, is, it has not been of importance and it is not, not important right now. For building up a reputation in a particular field, it has been important and it still is important. Um, uh, it depends a bit also on your own or on my own 
let's say, value system, how important I think publications are. And, and I certainly think that today's uh, approach on handling publication, publication indices like a Hirsch Index and things like this has turned out to be a little bit crazy by now, I would say. So I, I'm basically trying not to think about it. It's not a criteria. It's, it happens in the end. Or it does not happen, but I don't spend any time on thinking about it. And it's certainly not um, a dimension that I use for making decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of handling publications, the peer review process of assessing a manuscript before it's being published is yeah. also intensely debated currently, raising, for example, the issue of lack of accountability or the possibility of abuse, along with other flaws. So I'm curious, what is your take on the peer review process? Well, certainly peer review has its problems. And it has, and I think over the last 15 to 20 years, I can see the problems have been increasing. There are two different situations. One is the situation when you are publishing. So that means you are reporting as an author about scientific work and the results that you have accomplished. And then this is where experts will be reading through your manuscripts and making decisions and, and eva evaluating your work. That is one thing. And there is certainly something that needs to be improved. And uh, there's a lot of debate going on. I personally also think that we should probably have a more open process for reviewing. That means not uh, that the author is public or that the, um, the, uh, the reviewers are kept secret. I think uh, public, the, the reviewers and the publishing scientists should be openly discussed with, uh, with each other, so knowing each other and everybody else can join and observe the discussion as it is going on. I think that would be an important step uh, if it comes to reviewing publishing work. The other part of reviewing is the um, for research grants. So if I'm sub submitting a proposal for research money and it needs to be reviewed, and that process is definitely flawed by now, simply because the number of proposals that are submitted to any type of program is increasing as crazy because it's also uh, an effect of uh, turning science more economic that competition is supposed to be better. So more people are applying for smaller grants That means uh, I think that all this re re uh, research grant proposal reviewing process has turned out to be a complete a gamble. It's a, it's a lottery. So, and there we, I will, I'm, I'm, let's say, pretty known by now, I think, in our domain to be an advocate that we should make it a lottery to begin with because it saves a lot of time and it has a lot of positive side effects and we should adventure into a lottery-based uh, distribution of research money. And some organizations are actually making some experiments with this right now. I also heard that another commonly raised issue is the dependency on the existing incentive schemes that then center research topics rather around trend topics that are high in media popularity and public attention due to the likelihood of getting a grant or further incentives. Is that still an issue in research? Yeah, that certainly is one thing because you, you mentioned earlier, okay, if you look at the typical incentive schemes that are used for measuring the performance of professors and, and scientists in general, so it's about how much money you earn by submitting research grants, how much you are published and, and how many citations you collect and things like this. And all those things are pushing into the situation that people have to optimize 
how, how much effort and, and time they are spending on one or the other thing. And uh, in the end of the day, the, the danger is that people are not driven primarily by their scientific interests and curiosity, but mostly uh, how to optimize certain um, evaluation criteria. And it has all sorts of negative side effects. And um, I personally think it's it's not leading us into the right direction, uh, even though it's high competitive, uh, but competition in the strict sense of the word as it is used in economics or in business is not maybe 100% applicable to the scientific world. And now heading over to a topic, I hope we will see some advancement even faster than in ethics and AI namely gender inequalities in the STEM field. You have been serving as the vice president for diversity and talent management at TUM for a couple of years, and you are still active in this field. So how do you think we can make STEM fields more attractive to women? Well, there, there's one challenge to see how to make it more attractive for women. I would put it in a slightly more general context and see how can we make STEM fields more attractive for young people in general. And that also includes, of course, women. And um, we can also see that um, just because some STEM field, electrical engineering or any other informatics is a geeky field, is not a sufficient argument to convince young people to dedicate their life to this profession and to learn it and to study it. And it has all these negative connotations, be difficult and people fail and all those things. Um Well, I, I think we have to start out to understand and to, to communicate that if you are facing issues in our lifetimes on this world, it could be uh, Corona as well as uh, challenges of uh, climate change uh, and, and how to save the climate in those things. So we also may have other types of, uh, of health issues and problems of fighting cancer. And well, you just name all those problems that we are struggling with. Where do we get the energy from in order to continue living on this earth without killing it. All those things and all the technologies and stuff that we need to solve those issues are coming from people who are basically have a, an educational background in STEM. And so we have to communicate more clearly. So if you really want to save the world, then, then the best way you can start out with is maybe get some background in the technical field because the, the, the solutions will be coming to some extent, from technology. So it's not just being a geek somehow and uh, improving only the, the, the crispness of the images on a screen, but probably we have to refocus and say, what else can we do to contribute to saving our planet and to save our lives and save our world? That is, that is I think, giving it more meaning than just uh, having the geek pictures in front and the stereotypes. We have, we have been looking into this for some time and now also had a supervised the thesis work on this one. I guess my, my hunch is that the, the, the broader public has a wrong image in their head if it comes to technical fields like electrical engineering or computer science or anything in this direction. And those pictures are old-fashioned. And, and also the roles that are associated with those professions are old-fashioned. So we have to change this and make sure People understand this is this is a contribution to saving our planet. Mm -hmm. So you would argue that it is rather a reputational problem that all STEM study programs have. Yeah, absolutely. Number one, if you if you were to say, okay, there's some stereotypes that say, okay, men are more capable for math and physics than women. Women, 
that's crap. That's wrong. There's no indication in any ways that women are less capable in mathematics or physics or any similar field than men. That's simply not true. Um, there's a number of other stereotypes that go along. And then there's an interesting observation that somebody has been making some time ago. We can measure, um, uh, we can measure the so-called gender gap, the discrimination gap between men and women. There's uh, some methodologies available for this. That means that you can measure how equal, uh, equal the men and women are in a certain society. Societies with, with a high value in this domain are typically in the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, European countries are doing fairly well. Countries where this type of index is very low, it's typically in Maghreb, as North Africa, um, Turkey, uh, Pakistan, India, in those countries. That's just a different cultural environment. But if you look into the number of young people joining STEM fields, then we see that the highest uh, probability, the highest part of, of women in engineering fields are in those countries where they have a large gap in gender equality. So the, the more equal the genders are, the less the, the, the percentage of females in STEM fields. And that's kind of counterintuitive in the first moment. But the point is to see that means in a, in a society where women and men are close to be equal, women feel more free to choose the professions and the field of studies they feel comfortable with, they can associate with. And they rather put something there where they see a meaning. And they don't see necessarily the meaning in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering. This is why they choose maybe law or medicine or business for that matter. In, in countries like in India or in Pakistan, for many women, joining an engineering field is their chance to get a, a decent social recognition. It's a step-up mechanism. And therefore, a lot more young women are taking those STEM fields than, than in, in, in our environment. So this is a, it's just a thing about reputation, how things are positioned. And uh, you said, I'm still active in this one. Yes, I'm active and I keep being active in this one. And my hunch is that to say, we can't convince people to think differently by giving them all sorts of lectures and educational programs, how important electrical engineering is and how good are the, the job, pro, uh, the, the job um, security in engineering. Young people don't care for those things. They want to be cool. They want to be part of something important. You have to convey the message. If you really want to be cool, if you really want to help us join saving the world, you better spend your time in engineering. Just to make a simple statement. How do you convey this message? I think we have to more make more use of uh, media, movies, television shows, and things like this. So you hardly ever see an electrical engineer saving the world on a television show in the evening. It's all usually lawyers or medical doctors. So we should have a television show where engineers are saving the world, female engineers most dominantly. And this is, I don't know if you know about my, my, my web series that I was producing. Yeah, I was just about to touch upon your series called Technically Single. You launched it at the end of 2018. Yes. Do you want to share what this series is all about? So a few years back, I came to the conclusion that we have, also, we have no engineering heroes in television shows and movies. The, the most famous engineer in a movie, nobody knows that he is an engineer 
Or have you known that old Shatterhand is an engineer? You know, Winnetou and old Shatterhand. Yeah. Old Shatterhand is the engineer, but nobody knows it. And otherwise, we have engineers on movie shows like in Star Wars. It's Scotty, but he's only the hero of third kind, uh, the third level hero. First level hero is, is certainly is the Captain Kirk. And then the second level hero is Spock and McCoy is the, also the important because he's the doctor. And then comes the engineer, Scotty. And he has very limited text only and a very limited role to play in this, in this show. And it is very, very typical for this one. And then I try to convince my former colleagues from a media life in media, why don't, do, why don't you write a script for a movie or for a show with engineers? And then they usually said, oh, you know what, this is so boring because engineers, what do they talk? Nobody understands what they're saying. And then they said, well, if Dr. House is giving a, a, a diagnosis of any kind, do you understand the single word? Does it matter? No, it does not matter. It's, it's other things than the technical content that matters. So we have to tell stories with engineers in the front page And the stories are all about the things that are important to us. It's about friendship. It's about love. It's about hate. It's about uh, intrigues and, and all the good and bad things that happen to us in life. Uh, Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy is the main story is also about relationships and friendships and all those things. And it happens to happen in a, in a hospital. And this was, and I, and I never could any convince any media creation company or people to generate such a show. And then I said, damn it, I make it myself. And then I started to look around for young people who were willing to help me. So, and I bumped into people from the university for film and television here in Munich. And we, we kicked this around and said, cool, let's do it. And that's what we did. And it took us five years. But in the end, uh, Technically Single was launched in, in 2018. And currently, as we speak, we're working on the scripts for the second season. Okay, great. That's awesome. Now, all the listeners who are interested in your web series, they can watch it on Maxdom or 6.de. Am I right? No longer, I'm afraid. The contracts have expired. Uh, but I hope that we'll be back online in the not too far future mm -hmm. with the first season of Technically Single. Okay, but then you have to tell us when does the second season start? Do you already have a specific date in mind? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say these days of Corona. Because, of course, creating scripts and pre preparing production is one thing, but uh, you also have to have the opportunity to actually shoot that stuff. And that's kind of difficult these days. So it's hard to say. It, will, it won't happen this year anymore. It's maybe in 2021. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Professor Diepold, I'm super curious. Will the main characters and the storyline around Julia Mertelbauer and her best friend Jackie, both studying electrical engineering, stay or will they change in the new season? No, no, no. We hope we hope we can continue like in a good old series that uh, our main protagonist, Julie Mertelbauer, will be still part of the next season and her her, her friend Jackie. And, uh, they, they will most, most of them will be around and it will still be located in some technical university, which happens to look a little bit like, like Technical University of Munich. And uh, they're still studying electrical engineering and the story will continue. Yeah. And did you already observe some effects of launching the first series? Uh, well, this is very difficult because, of course, if you had like a blockbuster movie, probably you could see something. Um, we, we have not been able to measure it because it, for that, the, the show was too small scale. 
Um, we know from other investigations from the Gina Davis Institute in the United States, as well as from Fraunhofer Institute, who did some uh, studies in uh, earlier, uh, that television shows of this type have an impact. Uh, like the X-Files was a very strong motivator for many women in the United States to pick up uh, studies in, in natural sciences. And there, there the, the lady, the female character is a scientist and she's a, the, rash, the rational person in, the, in a duo of investigators and her partner, he's the more mythical guy, mystical guy, and she is very strict and very logical and very methodology, methodology, methodology approach. And she was basically inspiring a whole generation of young women to pick up physical studies. And that effect has been measured. The same with CIS shows or CSI, crime scene investigation, CSI. It also has been measured that after those shows were kicked off, that the number of students signing up for those study programs in the United States has been growing. There is an effect. Our show is maybe too small. Maybe the next one will become bigger. I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And for the next episode, will you also stick with this short video format? I think each episode currently lasts about 10 minutes. Right, right. Yeah. So I guess, I guess that's for a web series, that's the kind of the format that we will be sticking with. Relatively short uh, episodes, 10 minutes. Maybe it will be a few more depending on how much funding we can pick up. So we had in the first um, series, we only had five episodes and we hope to maybe have eight episodes next time, depending, as I said, how much money we can raise for this one. And why did you decide to go for such a short video format? Was it mainly money-wise or due to the ever-growing demand for short-form video content? I think that uh, if you look into the typical behavior on the internet, how long things are to be watched on clips, It's, it's certainly not 90 minutes or, or 50 minutes uh, duration. It's a relatively short um, format. And 10 minutes, we figured, might be a good size uh, for a video clips that you are, well, you can engage your audience. It also generates kind of a very fast-moving story. So it's a very, it has its own language, you could say. And we, we have been, well, the, the, the script writer, um, Sebastian Stoyetz. He has been winning a, a kind of prestigious award for his, his script for this, uh, for this show. And, it, and most people in this domain in the media business were quite intrigued by combining two things. One is this very short format, like 10 minutes or one episode, but not just having a production quality of like shooting your videos with a smart camera. But we used real movie production facilities and movie production quality process. So the visual quality and the production quality is very high. And still, in terms of um, the, the episode length, it's still a web format. That This is a different format than creating movies or television shows. Talking about women and STEM, I mean, we finally have a female quota also for boardrooms of listed companies in Germany. Since you have been engaging to make the STEM field more attractive to diverse students for a couple of years, what is your take on the female quota? Well, well, I'm not sure if I can call it a good idea. I think it's a necessary thing. We have been seeing throughout the years that uh, if you leave it open for the companies and you appeal to their, to their let's say, 
the, the rationality to say, okay, you should do something about it. I said, yeah, yeah, we do, but we can't compromise quality and we just need, we are only picking competent people and we don't look out for the gender of those people. Well, we've been hearing this throughout those many years and nothing really happens. And, uh, and uh, there's an experience also been made in countries like in, in Scandinavia and Norway, where they have been starting with those quota re regulations many years earlier. And the expectation there and the learnings is that you have to press for quota until you reach a level of about 30% women in the boardrooms. And once the women percentage of is crossing the 30%, then I guess there is, then you can release it. Then it, it, it creates its own momentum. But unless it's, uh, unless that you reach that point, I will still think you have to probably force those quota on, on those companies and uh, no excuses. But this does not only apply to women in the boardroom. Um, if you look into the, the composition of the board of many big corporations like ducks co uh, companies, and uh, you can certainly ask the question, how diverse is the composition of those ones? Uh, and, well, and there, I can remember seeing pictures of the board of a big a German company and there are seven people on the picture, one woman, six men, and the, the men are all plus, minus, five, two years in age, all white, all the same background, all the same. So very um, homogeneous. Say, so, okay, how can you expect a board with such a composition for a big international corporation to face all the challenges that, that those companies are facing? So there's an there's an old uh, statement by Ashby. He was one of the, let's say, big figures in the times of cybernetics in the 1940s, 1950s. And Ashby said that an organism to interface with a complex environment has to be internally as complex as the outside the organism is supposed to be dealing with. So if you have a big corporation that is dealing with all the complexities in an international business, the internal structure needs to be just as complex, meaning diverse. And I think it's really great that you stress that boardroom diversity goes beyond gender diversity. I mean, it covers age, background, ethnicity, experience, all that besides solely gender. But I think it's so striking that there are several studies that show that diversity in boardrooms has a positive effect on firm performance. Nevertheless, big corporations yeah, have still such a hard time to commit to more diversity on the management level. I, well, we have the same argumentation within the universities as well. It's not just the big corporations, it's also the big universities. And what measures does the TUM take to foster more diversity on its own management board? Well, over the last well years, also starting with the time when I was vice president responsible for those topics, the old president, he was pressing a lot of uh, having, let's say, mechanisms in place to make sure that the, the, the chances for women to claim a professorship is increased. So if you, you have to basically actively look for candidates, for female candidates in any subject. So if you are only receiving, let's say, 20 applications for a professorship or 30 and they're all male, you can't really continue. So you have to bring up and you have to headhunt for female professor candidates and make them um, motivate them to apply. And then 
you have a certain ratio between female and male, and you have to continue to keep up this ratio through the whole process. And if you do not have a person, a female on the list, on the short list, then you have to give particular reasons and ex explain why this is and why you have not been taking into account this candidate or that candidate, female candidate. So forcing people to actively think about it, that is really one way. Um, there could More could be done, I'm quite sure about this, but that's a process. But uh, we don't have quota, but a quota in a sense at least that we make sure that we... Uh, within the, an appointment process, we stick to the cascade model. So that means um, if there's 30% women applying for the job, we expect 30% women on the shortlist. Last week, I looked into the TUM. Uh, we have this magazine that comes out every two months or month or so, TU Mitteilungen, and there all the new professors are typically also introduced with a short with a short CV and a short story and a picture. And, and open up the booklet last month, and it was like six professors new joining the TUM. There were five women and one man. This is a rare moment. I have to keep this document. Oh, great news. And I think this is a perfect example that shows that small changes in the recruitment process can actually make a big difference for diversity. So great that we can, yeah, close also this topic on such a positive note. Dan, Professor Diepold, thank you so much for sharing your experience and also your passion for the STEM field and taking action towards diversity in STEM. It was great having you here today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure for me. And you're probably missing the answers to Professor Diepold's toolbox regarding his favorite book, Thought Leader, Newsletter and Podcast. Unfortunately, we don't have the answers as an audio track since Professor Diepold was our very first podcast guest. Yeah, our guinea pig, so to say. And we only developed the concept of the recurring toolbox afterwards. But we will share Professor Diepold's toolbox on our social media channels, especially on LinkedIn. So just search for Center for Digital Technology and Management or CDTM and yeah, subscribe to receive all the updates, toolboxes and news firsthand. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and we hope to have you back again on Wednesday in two weeks.